I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello everyone, welcome to the Midweek Show. We're doing Chapter 7 of Ivan Sanderson's 1961 book, Abominable Snowman, Legend Come to Life, and the chapter is called Late North Americans. Tom, do you want to have a few words before we get this going? Yeah, absolutely. I just want to thank everybody for tuning in for the Midweek Show. And if you like the show, we like to hear about this. So click the like button if you haven't subscribed already. Click the subscribe button. And if you want to support us, you can do so with the link. Uh, we have a Patreon link in the description. We're going to be uh, adding a second piece to this show because um, this chapter was a short one. It's only about a half hour long. So we're going to add, I think it's uh, introducing B- BC's Harry Giants. It was the article. But um, anyway, folks, like we've been doing the past couple of weeks, we're not going to do the um, commentary after the readings. So send us your comments, questions, whatever you have to um, either on YouTube in the comment section or email us and we'll address those on the weekend show. So having said that, stand by folks and the recordings are about to start. This reading is from the book Abominable Snowmen, written by Ivan T. Sanderson and published in 1961. This is chapter 7, entitled Late North Americans. All possible knowledge has, of course, been right under our noses since the beginning, but we have to dig for it. Often we miss things. Sometimes we deliberately ignore them. You can take the title of this chapter any way you like. Late is a useful word. It has two completely opposite meanings that imply novelty or extinction. There is also a connotation of tardiness about a latecomer. This serves my purpose well. When Betty Ellen started browsing around among her Amerindian friends, She brought to light two sets of surprising facts. The first was simply that said friends, one and all, had always known about the Tokimusis and Omas, completely accepted them as being quite real, and regarded them in no wise bizarre. They had, however, and quite rightly, long since decided that they were not a suitable topic for conversation with white men, since it seemed to annoy them. While their even mentioning their beliefs about the matter only augmented the general contempt in which all the other ideas were already held. There were those among the Amerinds, even of the older generation, who just brushed the business aside or referred to it as folklore. Surprisingly, though, there proved to be not a few among the younger generation who met the white man's skepticism with a deep-rooted scorn of their own, and who affirmed that there was absolutely no doubt that these man-like creatures still exist, and not in too few numbers either, not only all over this territory, but over other wide areas. I had the privilege of talking to some of these young people myself and was much impressed. I might almost say startled, not only by their sincerity, but also by the matter-of-fact way in which they discussed it and 
their reasons for not previously discussing it with any outsiders. Though I have the permission of some of these new friends to mention their names, I will refrain from doing so, because they would undoubtedly be subjected to ridicule and an unmerciful ribbing, even in their own community. I will not report in full what they told me, nor all that Betty Allen learned, because it is highly repetitious, is little different from all the other accounts I have given of observations of the creatures, and does not really add any new details. One and all of that category of account of which I speak were firsthand. I have some two dozen on file. Alleged encounters with the creatures in and about this block of montane forest which I call the Klamath. The interesting thing is that these reports go back to the 1930s, but become increasingly more frequent up till 1958. Since then, they have formed a positive flood. My interpretation of this is that while the age of the tellers naturally showed up statistically, another factor is much more important. This factor is that it is only comparatively recently that roads have been started into these large areas of national forest. The Jeep caused the first move in this activity, being one better than a mule in this country, but needing at least a clear path of a certain width that might loosely be called a road. Next, the government decided to open up these national forests to timber cruising, it having been demonstrated that one of the best ways to conserve timberlands is to cut out the oversized and overaged trees which retard new growth. The road building program, for the first time, took large numbers of people into areas not previously penetrated, or into which people found it hard to go even to hunt. These are the retreats of the Oma. The other thing that Betty Allen brought to light was the much more surprising fact that this was not, by any means, only an Amerindian folktale. She began to hear the names of white men and others who, it was said, had also met or seen these creatures. She went after these persons too and found out in due course that it was so, and that they, in turn, had not been saying anything for fear of ridicule. I withhold their names too, as I do not have permission of any to publish them, and I would no more wish to embarrass them than I would my Amerindian friends. Most of these had also been employed on road construction, but there were others, including two doctors of medicine returning from a mass emergency late one night along Route 299, going east from Willow Creek, who said they had nearly run into one, although they had slowed down, thinking it to be somebody signaling for a lift. They said that it was at least seven feet tall when it stood up, had straight legs but very long arms, and was clothed in thick, lightish brown fur. And who better than, even tired, medical men ought to know? Some of these local stories went back 30 years. Then there was the extremely unsavory, to me, interjection of the business of, quote, little people. It is a particularly odd one in this neighborhood for several reasons. First, the Amerins will not, as far as I have been able to determine, come right out and either assert or deny their existence. Unlike the giants, of which they speak quite factually, they seem to regard these pygmies with a high degree of superstition, and their folk tales are rife with stories of such little people playing with their children on riverbanks, but, while being visible to youngsters, being invisible to adults. This is a very widespread myth that crops up all over the world about fairies, pixies, and such like little folk. However, some white people of higher education and resident on the outskirts of fully opened up and settled areas, have told the same story, and perfectly straight, but 
have also, in several cases, implied that they had assumed or had definite grounds for supposing that these little hairy ones were the young of the Omas. Simultaneously, this dearth of direct claims that these midgets have been seen is in marked contrast to reports that their little foot tracks have actually been found both in snow and mud much more often than those of the giants. I have seen sketches of these drawn to scale, but so far no photographs or plaster casts. Many times they're said to crowd around pools or depressions in snow and to trail into and out of the undergrowth in all directions. They are very funny little imprints, averaging only about four inches long, and do, for the life of me, look very like those of tiny men, but with very pointed heels. I frankly don't like this. I don't like it one bit. And it also upsets me. All of us almost automatically become annoyed with anything new, and especially when it appears to conflict with our logic and the orderly tenure of our lives. Perhaps you will say that if I can accept the possibility of the presence of giants, I ought to be able to take these little people in my stride. So I should, but I am afraid that I am a very pragmatic person, and there is something unsubstantial about these little footprints. Perhaps it is that I have not seen them in the fresh state myself. In fact, I find myself performing all the mental gyrations of the most advanced skeptics and debunkers in this case, and I know full well that I am doing my damnedest to explain them away. The first thing one thinks of, just like the zoologist confronted with the Himalayan yetis, is any kind of local animal that might produce these tracks, and by Jove, there certainly is one. This is the large western porcupine. This animal has an astonishingly human-looking hind foot when seen from below, apart from the long claws. It has a somewhat pointed heel, but there is the problem of its claws. And then there is another objection. The porcupine can waddle along on its hind feet quite well, but, like the ground sloths of old, it has a thick, stubby tail that is directed downward and which forms a tripod with the hind legs when the animal is standing up. However, it can be raised somewhat and could possibly be carried off the ground. At the same time, the claws on the back feet of really large porcupines are actually raised well off the ground so that the swollen pads under the feet can sink into soft substances quite away before the claws leave imprints. Yet, these tracks clearly show five toes, not sharply incised claw marks, all of about the same size and arranged almost straight across the front of the feet. In an endeavor to overcome this fact, an ingenious naturalist friend of mine has suggested that the claws of animals sometimes acquire globular encrustations of ice in winter when they are tramping about in wet snow and when a frost is coming on, and that these might produce the impressions of toes. But what then of the tracks in mud, all over and by thousands? As I say, I don't like this business, but I also don't like leaving it up in the air. Yet, I have nothing to add to it as of now, until and unless I can go and find some of the tracks in mud myself and carry out my own particular kind of investigation thereupon, I shall refrain from further comment. It transpired that nearby, certain persons who are free, white, family folk live in rather expensive houses, sometimes of the split-level ranch type, on blacktop roads around which school buses parade daily to take their offspring to be educated. In many cases, they own houses which stand in several acres of land, 
backed up against solid forest that has not been touched except for logging of large timber a century ago. They had something most unpleasant to report. These people live not more than 30 miles from a large and bustling modern city. They stated, in confidence and off the record, to certain locals for whose veracity I will vouch, that they had for long experienced a problem. This was simply that their kids, i.e. under seven-year-olds, had been found to be playing in the back fields up by the borders of the forest with certain fairly small hairy ones who, when alarmed by the approach of human adults, allegedly took to the trees. Said human kids, on reaching the age of reason, turned out not to want to talk about this abomination, while their parents most definitely did not and do not want it talked about. Nonetheless, they have talked a bit, and I pass it on to you for what it is worth. This is the kind of thing that gets people really riled. It also seems to me to slop over into the realm of, quote, little people that only kids can see. Let us just suppose for a moment that Oma mothers permit their kids to play with ours up to about the age of seven, but tell them to cut out the moment one of the adults appears over the fence. Naturally, it would be only the kids who see the little hairy ones. There is no better playmate for a child than a two-year-old chimpanzee. There are other items connected with ABS Emory generally in this area, and to the north of it, which I also do not like, but which should be presented, and also without comment. This comes from, of all places, Albany in Oregon, which is in the Willamette Valley at the foot of Mount Jefferson, and concerns a certain Lake Conser. A brief notice of this was published in Fate magazine's issue for January 1961, and read thus. Albany, Oregon. The monster of Conser Lake is still on the loose. The creature reportedly stands on two webbed feet, is seven to three feet high, or tall, and with its shaggy white hair somewhat resembles a gorilla. It has kept pace with a truck going 35 miles per hour. Never harmed anyone, though. This is a nasty one, but let me give you some further details. These were contained in a letter to a friend of mine dated October 27, 1960. The letter follows. Creatures, several, last report, being sighted on Farmer's Farm. An attempt is being made to contact Farmer, whom to date wants his name and address held secret, have made five investigation trips, and have for evidence a fingerprint lifted off a house window, including a plaster cast of a footprint, right. Have personal taped accounts of this creature plus many interviews. This includes photographs. He is all of seven feet tall, 400 pounds, can move at tremendous speeds, jump tremendous distances. No news items concerning this being have been printed in the Portland papers. He displays extreme cunning, walks and runs erect, appears frustrated, acts as if he would like to communicate. He makes extremely high-pitched sounds. His hair or fur has a slight glow in the dark and is three to four inches long. He walks with feet 19 inches long that make a squishy sound. He has been seen in daylight and at night and seen to disappear once into the lake. We'll send you complete report as soon as I can. Creature first sighted several miles north of Albany, Oregon, in a dense land area approximately three square miles. Open land extends all around this area and dotted with farms. Have any ideas how he got there? Sorry for the delay, for there has been new developments. 
A farmer who wishes to remain anonymous has sighted several on his farm. He is attempting to make friends with them. One is brown and one is white. At times, they imitate his voice when he talks to them. Mr. Farmer is an animal trainer, and at the last report, steady progress is being made. Hal Starr was contacted by this farmer and has promised that the location and that his name not be revealed. I would like to investigate further, but am handicapped. They are up to seven feet height, covered with long hair, which hangs over their faces. They walk erect and with all fours. They have taken a shine to the horses, but the horses were frightened of them. Lots of footprints around and are cloven. Two weeks ago, a sheriff of Salem told me that he heard on radio KBZY that a person had called in saying that he had seen a creature near Highway 99. I talked to the announcer in Salem and verified this event. I'm busy writing you a complete report. Hope this will suffice for a while. I'm afraid that this did not, quote, hold me even for a little while because it is altogether one of the most shocking reports that has yet come into my hands. I have been pursuing the matter diligently with, however, no result whatsoever. This remark about going into the water on the part of an ABSM is fairly common and causes me to think furiously on two counts. First, it is really a very bizarre thing for anybody who is making a good story out of a series of lies to think up. Into a cave or even into a swamp, yes, but into water per se? Just as if it were an aquatic or at least semi-aquatic creature? It's very weird. At the same time, one just has to take into account the perfectly astonishing theory put forward by Professor Sir Alistair Hardy of Oxford early in 1960, and which, utterly bizarre as it at first sounds, has been most seriously considered by scientists and fully accepted as at least possible by many. This suggests that one branch of the general anthropoid stock, and although Sir Alistair calls them apes, I think we should surely call them hominids, or at least as already being on the man branch of that stock, rather than on the pongid or ape branch. About a million years ago, took to semi-aquatic life and especially along seacoasts. But let this bold savant state his case in his own words. Quote, Many apes were driven to hunt in the sea by fierce competition for food in the forests. At first they waded and groped in the water, but gradually learned how to swim. Over a period of several hundred thousand years, the species lost its hair as it carried on its marine life. The only hair left was on the very top of the head to help protect the creature from the sun. The sea ape learned to stand upright because water helped support the body. It developed longer legs than its land-based brother ape for swimming. Its hands became sensitively shaped to allow it to feel along the seabed for shellfish and open crabs. It learned to use tools by picking up stones to crack open sea urchins. It would be only a step for man to discover that flints chipped into sharper and more useful tools, knives, and arrows. Then, armed with such equipment and his erect posture, he was all set for the chase. He could now reconquer the continents, running and hunting the animals of the plains. I estimate that apes were driven into the shallow seawaters a million years ago. They emerged as men about 500,000 years ago. End quote. He said he had discussed his theory with many other scientists, and they had been unable to find a flaw in it. If in the sea, why not also, or even previously, in rivers, lakes, and ponds, more especially as swamps and marshes were much more prevalent in the past than they are now, particularly in the pluvial periods following the ice advances and retreats of the past million years? 
Then again, there is another most convincing aspect of this idea, as follows. If, at the beginning of the Pleistocene, there were a variety of primitive anthropoids of the hominid branch scattered about the earth, and if all of these were hairy, but did not all become extinct, as we have until now supposed, we have some ready-made characters for our ABSMs. Let us suppose that several of these started going into water after food, and that one, or perhaps several, types did very well at it, lost their body hair, learned to crack stones and all the rest, and then came back to conquer the land as men, just as Professor Hardy suggests. Some of the types that started the practice may never have gotten further than ducking into inland lakes, and, while they did not keep at it fervently enough to lose their body hair, they did develop very long toes, with an almost complete web between them. Do not forget that we still have two half-webbed toes ourselves, our third and fourth, and please don't fail to flip over to Appendix B and take a look at the California Big Feet, in which the second ball appears to be an enlarged basal big toe joint. All the toes of this type must then be very long and be webbed, because the mud or snow does not squish up between them, but forms, and always forms, a tall angular ridge running at right angles to the direction of travel, just where it would be bunched up if the foot were webbed. We might therefore legitimately conceive of the Sasquatch, Oma type of ABSMs, at least being relics of early hominids with semi-aquatic habits. This would explain any failure to have tools. However, to interject at this point, I recently received a report from a neighboring area which would seem to indicate something of the same nature. This came to me from a young man in our Air Force whose wife is part amaranth. He lived until recently on the Maka Indian Reservation at Nia Bay, Washington. This young man got in touch with me through a magazine publisher, stating that he had some information that might interest me. I wrote him, and in reply received some very charming and highly informative letters, the contents of which I see no reason to question. Among these he wrote thus, In my letter to you I mentioned the 18 and a half inch footprints that were found out on the beach. I know these weren't made by any man going around with a foot cut out of a piece of wood. This beach is about eight miles in the backwoods and is a very hard spot to get to. On another occasion last summer, one of the fishermen out here was going to bed and heard a lot of splashing going on in a swamp in his backyard. From what he told me, he got a flashlight and went out there to take a look around and seen this huge creature tearing back into the woods after the light hit him. Up to this date, there has been nothing more seen of it, although many people are waiting for it to come back. The day this person told me of what happened, I took a gun and went into the swamp to look around. I actually found huge hunks of hair that must have been pulled loose when he ran back into the woods that night. I have hunted and killed quite a few bears around here, but that hair that I found that day was definitely not a hair from a bear. For one thing, there was a couple of hairs that I measured to be close to 14 inches long, and these hunks had a very strong odor, unlike any bear that I have killed. There is also one other occasion that makes me think that the abominable snowman is up around this neck of the woods. This happened to me sometime before I read your articles in the True magazine. One evening, I went up on this unused logging road to hunt bear. I was some 13 miles up this road, and there is not one person living for about 20 miles around. On this occasion, I happened to be alone. Well... 
Anyway, I was sitting on a stump and was sitting there for about an hour when I heard this high-pitched scream like a baby. But this went on for almost an hour, and the more I listened to it, the more I decided that it wasn't a mountain lion. Then, after a while, it stopped, and I never heard it again, and I left without looking around. Then, after I read your article, I thought it might have been a snowman up there. I went up there quite a few times after that, but never heard or seen anything. Once again, I have received nothing more from this source. It has always been my firm belief as a reporter that children don't lie. By this, I mean that while real kids, say under seven, live in a world of their own, peopled by many things that are not of our world, but which are still most real to them. And while young persons from seven to the age of puberty delight in pulling the legs of their elders with tall tails, all young persons are much more basically honest than grown-ups. More important, I do not believe that a young person can carry a lie forced upon him or her by an elder for any length of time, and especially under sympathetic questioning. I am therefore always interested in what young people have to say, provided that they know that I am sincerely interested, have an open mind, and am not critical of their age. Young people are also extremely keen observers, perhaps because they take a more nearly worm's-eye view of life and because their senses are more acute. Thus, when somebody tells me something that happened to them when they were young, I like to listen. This then from a young person about an incident when she was still younger. Dear Mr. Sanderson, I have just finished reading your story concerning the abominable man of Northern California. Before I write any further, I would like to say that what I am about to say is positively true, and I have never told anyone this story before for fear that they would think that I was half-cracked and out of my mind. I have seen this man-monster and can give you a detailed description of him. He is far from being pretty, and I still wake up nights dreaming of him. When? About nine years ago, and about ten o'clock in the morning. Where? near the Eel River above Eureka, California, at the edge of a meadow near the river's edge. Under what circumstances? My family and I were fishing on the Eel River. We had been camped in the vicinity for about two weeks, and it had poor luck when it came to fishing. I used to go for a short walk before breakfast, because there was a very pretty meadow about a mile or two from our camp, and I used to love to see the mist rise off the grass. I was only about ten years old at the time, and the world of nature was something which both fascinated and enthralled me. I entered the meadow and proceeded to cross it in order to reach a small knoll on the other side. When I approached the foot of the knoll, I heard a sound. It was the sound of someone walking, and I thought perhaps my little brother had followed me and was going to jump out and try to scare me. I hollered, All right, stinker, I know you're there. Needless to say, it was not my brother that appeared. Instead, it was a creature that I will never forget as long as I live. He stepped out of the bushes, and I froze like a statue. He, or it, was about seven to eight feet tall. He was covered with brown stuff that looked more like a soft down than fur. He had small eyes set close together and had a red look about them. His nose was very large and flat against his face. He had a large mouth with the strangest-looking fangs that I have ever seen. His form was that of a human, and he had hands and feet of enormous size, but very human-looking. However, there was one thing that I have not mentioned, the strangest and most frightening thing of all. He had on clothes. 
Yes, that's right. They were tattered and torn and barely covered him, but they were still there. He made a horrible growling sound that I don't think could be imitated by any living thing. Believe me, I turned and ran as fast as I could. I reached camp winded and stayed scared all while we were there. I have often thought that perhaps it was a mutation of some kind. I think this thing is highly dangerous and something should definitely be done about it. I would be willing to testify to anything I have stated in this letter. I'm not a crackpot and am completely sound of mind and body. I just thought you might be interested to know what your man monster really looks like. Believe me, if you saw him, he would scare the wits out of you. I know. Yours truly, signed Miss B.C. It is not perhaps quite proper to interject the following comments at this point, but I contend a reporter has the right to indulge some speculation upon matters that he has investigated firsthand. This may be an infringement upon editorial rights but can be fobbed off as background information. It seems to me that there is something to this whole bit in California, Oregon, and Washington, and that it is pretty fatuous to try and put it all down to any of the standard explanations, such as the hoax, the publicity stunt, the Indian folktale, mass hypnotization, mass cases of mistaken identity of known animals, or other suggestions of that nature. We are all pretty odd, but we are not all liars or crackpots. Further, I do not feel it to be either right or justified to dub all Washingtonians, Oregonians, and North Californians as either, just because they say something we don't like or which does not fit into our orderly pattern of what is or is not supposed to be. At the same time, I don't give a hang what any quote expert actually says. There are enormous areas in those three states about which nobody not even the majority of their inhabitants knows anything. I really cannot see why some new things should not turn up in those states. If you could read all the reports that I have, and much more, if you could listen to my recordings or have been with me when I interviewed and got to know the good people who had the guts to tell these stories, I think everyone interested would be not just amazed, but somewhat shamed. It is so easy to sit back in one's home surrounded by all the normal, known things of modern life and say, phooey. But get out in the woods and get hungry. A person will begin to see a lot of things he never saw before and would never have seen if he had not got lost and run out of food. Thus, when a teenager writes to me from the delightfully named Happy Camp at the edge of the Klamath area and says, quote, Reading your story of America's abominable snowmen, I find very interesting. But I think they've only found the baby. Here in Happy Camp, our cars are turned over and rolled into the river, six-foot trees uprooted, slides in the mountains, and when it snows ten feet deep, one-inch power lines are snapped in two. The daddy must cause this. End quote. I do not yell for Paul Bunyan and go into gales of laughter. Maybe there was no flood that shifted the cars, and the trees were six feet tall, not thick. If things as bizarre can happen, or be alleged to happen, right in our own backyard, we should be doubly careful of criticizing things that are reported to happen beyond our borders. And when these form a logical concomitant to happenings in our own ballywick, we ought to listen most carefully. Of course, there is the damnable added frustration in dealing with foreign matters inherent in their very foreignness. 
one can't often go and look into them firsthand, and if one does, one has language and other difficulties. Moreover, if we doubt our own citizens, how much more so may we not those of other countries? This is all a pity, but nonetheless the way things are. From now on, therefore, I won't expect anyone to believe what I report at all. We go first over the border south to our sister republic of Mexico. This is the end of chapter 7. This story, about 40 minutes long, is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. The title of the story, The Hairy Giants of British Columbia, told by J.W. Burns, Government Indian Agent Teacher, Chehalis Indian Reserve, British Columbia, and set down by Mr. C.V. Tench, illustrated by T.T. Muneo. This challenging article will undoubtedly arouse the derision of skeptics, both in Canada and elsewhere. After many years of patient investigation, Mr. Burns, a responsible government official, shares the firm belief of his Indian charges that, deep in the unexplored mountain wilds of British Columbia, there still lurk a few scattered survivors of the mysterious Sasquatch, primitive creatures of huge stature, covered from head to foot with coarse hair, who have figured in redskin legends for centuries. Mr. Burns recounts a number of seemingly well-authenticated stories of encounters with these uncanny wild men who carefully avoid all contact with civilization. Scientific expeditions had sought them in vain, and it is generally supposed that, if they ever existed, the giants have long since become extinct. But the Indians remain unconvinced. Before setting forth Mr. Burns' narrative, I should like to make it clear that he not only holds a highly responsible government position as an Indian agent, but is keenly interested in the subject of the hairy giants, which he has studied for a number of years. He is confident that his charges are perfectly sincere in their beliefs. They are not in contact with tourists and have no reason whatever to cook up fables for the benefit of the unsophisticated. Moreover, the Indians are reluctant to talk about the Sasquatch, even to him, a friend of long standing, and absolutely refuse to discuss the matter with all white strangers. They are simple-minded, unimaginative folk. The invention of so many different stories of encounters with the wild men would be quite beyond their powers. I am convinced, said Mr. Burns, that survivors of the Sasquatch do still inhabit the inaccessible interior of British Columbia. Only by sheer luck, however, is a white man likely to sight one of them, because, like wild animals, they instinctively avoid all contact with civilization, and in that rocky country it is impossible to track them down. I still live in hope, however, of some day surprising a Sasquatch, and when that happens, I trust to have a camera handy. And now for my story. Utterly terrified, the Indian raced madly toward the Chehalis River, where his dugout canoe was moored. In pursuit lunged a giant of a man at least eight feet in height and broad in proportion. He was stark naked and covered from head to toe by a thick growth of black woolly hair. 
In his fright, the Chehalis Indian, Peter Williams, completely forgot the rifle he clutched. He did not attempt to stop and fight it out. When he suddenly caught sight of the monster standing on the summit of a huge boulder, all reason fled, to be instantly supplanted by sheer panic as the giant growled and sprang toward him. Heedless of the tangled undergrowth, the Indian plunged wildly on, occasionally jerking his head around to gaze affrightedly at the horror behind. Reaching the riverside, he gave a frantic heave, and the dugout canoe shot out into the turbulent stream. The water, however, did not daunt the giant. He plunged forward in hot pursuit. The instant the bow of the dugout scraped the opposite bank, Peter Williams leaped ashore. The giant was now almost in midstream, swimming strongly. Once more the red man took to his heels. Well-nigh dazed from exhaustion, he finally reached the frame shack that was his home. Frenziedly, he herded his wife and children inside, bolted the door, and barricaded it with every article he could lay his hands on. Then, with his rifle at the ready, he tremblingly awaited the giant's arrival. Presently, there came the sound of a heavy body forcing its way through the brush. Darkness had not set in yet, and peering through a crack, Peter Williams took a good look at the monster. It was undoubtedly a Sasquatch, one of the well-nigh fabulous hairy giants which, according to the Indian belief, still inhabit the unexplored wilds of interior British Columbia. Growling deep-chestedly, the huge figure made a circle of the hut. Then, putting one shoulder against a wall, he pushed with such tremendous force that the flimsy dwelling shook. The timbers creaked and groaned so loudly under the strain that the Indian feared the roof would collapse and whispered to his squaw and children to crawl under the bed. They promptly obeyed, leaving their terrified lord and master to face the monster alone. To Peter's vast relief, however, the Sasquatch failed to force an entry after prowling gruntingly around the house for several minutes. He stalked away into the bush. Next morning... The Indian found the giant's tracks in the mud outside the shack. The footprints measured twenty-two inches in length. The foregoing is a condensed account of what Peter Williams later told me took place. I have known him for a good many years. He is intelligent, honest, and trustworthy. Speaking personally, I do not question the truth of his story, for it is only one of many reports concerning the mysterious Sasquatch or wild giants that I have heard firsthand from Indians under my official care. The incident happened, moreover, in my own district, the Saskaha area of British Columbia. The word Saskaha means place of the wild men. Indians won't talk. Before proceeding to relate further incidents connecting with the mysterious Sasquatch, I ought to explain that for the past fifteen years I have occupied a government position as Indian agent stationed at the Chehalis Indian Reserve, some sixty-odd miles from Vancouver, British Columbia. My charges are also my friends, and because I have always reciprocated their regard, endeavoring to help them in every way possible, the Chehalis Indians gradually took me into their confidence and eventually told me all they knew about the Sasquatch, a subject never previously discussed with any white man. Being naturally of a proud and somewhat aloof nature, they are extremely sensitive to ridicule, and so avoid all mention of a topic 
which experience had shown merely exposed them to derision. If a white stranger inquires about the Sasquatch, he is invariably met with the guarded reply, No, white man won't believe. He make joke of Indian. Although I have never personally encountered a Sasquatch, there is ample proof that hairy giants formerly inhabited the Chehalis district in considerable numbers. Its ancient name, a place of the wild men, was until recently accepted as an echo of primitive superstitions, but the accidental discovery a few years ago of two crude cave dwellings confirmed the Indian legend that the later troglodytic period of this region was the abode of human beings of huge stature. Survivors of this prehistoric race, the red men believe, still lurk in the interior vastness. Indian legends tell of two tribes of Sasquatches who dwelt in this section of the country. They were deadly enemies and practically exterminated one another, fighting hand to hand with war clubs on the mountainsides. Skeptics may laugh at the idea of primitive man in the shape of eight foot giants still living in British dominion, but nevertheless I have collected a good deal of evidence tending to prove that the Sasquatch may not be extinct. The Indians are by no means unintelligent, nor are they prone to imaginative lying, and when a keen-witted young woman such as Emma Paul declares that she saw one of the hairy giants close to her home one evening last summer, I feel convinced that she was telling the truth. Here is her story. I saw the Sasquatch a few yards from the house. I was standing by the door at the time. He was watching me closely, and I had a good look at his face. He was very big and powerful in appearance. Other members of my family were present, and they saw him. We went inside and bolted the door, but he prowled around the house for some time. Since then we have often heard the wild men. One of them used to rub his fingers over the window panes. Only a few nights ago a Sasquatch tramped loudly around the house. All of us heard him, and so did the white carpenter who lives next door. The Indians stoutly maintain that each summer the remnants of the Sasquatch hold a sacred gathering near the summit of Mora's Mountain, which commands a wide view of the vast solitudes all around. Prior to this rendezvous, the giants send scouts out to make certain the area is clear. It is these scattered investigators, the red men believe that individual Indians have encountered. Anthropologists all over the world are naturally keenly interested in the alleged existence of these hairy giants, and about two years ago the University of California sent a party into the British Columbia wilds in search of the Sasquatch. They were equipped for a lengthy expedition, and knowing of my interest in the subject, came to my home and sought my assistance in enlisting the aid of the Indian guides and packers. The expedition that failed. In spite of the fact that they were offered ten dollars a day and all found, not one of my Indians would volunteer for the trip, declaring that such a quest was doomed to failure. The Sasquatch detecting the approach of so many strangers would immediately go into hiding, the Americans therefore set out without native helpers, but in less than a fortnight they returned, gaunt and trail-weary. Needless to say, 
they had discovered no trace of the wild man, and they vowed that so far as ordinary white folk are concerned, the route to the top of Morris Mountain was utterly impassable. They were very disappointed at their failure, of course, and a few days after their departure, ironically enough, another of my Indians claimed to have encountered a Sasquatch. This Indian, an old man named Chehalis Philip, had previously told me that in his younger days he often saw the hairy giants. On this particular occasion he was fishing for trout in Morris Creek, a tributary of the Chehalis River. His canoe was gliding quietly along the sluggish mountain stream, close to the rocky terraced bank, when, without warning, a rock was hurled from the shelving slope above, falling with a tremendous splash within a yard of the canoe, almost swamping the frail craft. Startled, Philip hurriedly glanced upward to observe a huge man covered with hair leaping down the steep declivity with the agility of a panther. Under one arm he carried a bulky object that proved to be another boulder. Reaching a point of vantage, the giant deliberately slung the big stone straight at the now thoroughly scared Philip, missing the canoe by inches. Believing that the Sasquatch was about to dive into the water and attack him, the old Indian cast off his lines and paddled frantically away. Not all Sasquatch are unfriendly, however. Apparently their individual characteristics are just as strongly developed as those of ordinary mortals, as witness what an Indian named Henry Napoleon has to say. The first time I found out for sure that the wild men do still live around here, Henry told me, I did not see any of them. Some years ago, three other young men and myself were picking salmon berries on a rocky slope. In our search for fruit, we suddenly stumbled upon a large cave in the side of the mountain. This discovery greatly surprised us, for we thought we knew every foot of the mountain, but had never heard of a cave in that vicinity. Just outside the mouth of the cave lay a big boulder. We peered inside the opening, but could not see anything. Gathering some pitchwood, we lighted it and began to explore. Before we got very far from the entrance, however, we came upon a sort of stone house or enclosure. We couldn't make a very thorough examination, for our pitchwood torches kept going out. Finally, we left, intending to return in a couple of days and continue our search. Old Indians to whom we told the story warned us not to venture near the cave again, as it was undoubtedly occupied by the Sasquatch. But we paid no attention to them and went off to examine the cave once more. To our great disappointment and surprise, we found that the big boulder had been rolled into its mouth, fitting as tightly as if it had been made for the purpose, and we were quite unable to move it. Some years later, I was out hunting deer in the same neighborhood. Just about dusk I saw something I took to be a big bear standing on its hind legs, but when I stopped and raised my rifle... The creature spoke in a tongue that very much was like my own. He invited me to come closer, and when I did so, I saw that he was a man over seven feet tall. His body was very hairy. At first I was terribly scared, but his eyes looked kind, and he asked me to sit down and talk. He told me that 
during the winter the Sasquatch sleep like bears, and that their home is on top of Morris Mountain, where no Indian or white man could ever find them. They live on roots, fish, and meat, just like us Indians. Then suddenly it grew dark, and he slipped away. Another of my Indians, Charlie Victor by name, tells the following story of personal contacts with the Sasquatch. The Wild Woman There are now only a few of the wild giants of the mountains, said Charlie in his terse Indian dialect. They are rarely seen and seldom met, but some still live in the mountains around here. I have met them on several occasions. Some of the times I saw them, nothing happened. We stood and looked at one another, but the last time was not a happy meeting. It happened this way. I was hunting in the mountains and had my dog with me. One day I came out on a plateau where there were several big cedar trees. The dog rushed up to one of the trees and began to growl and bark. Looking up to see what had excited him, I noticed a large hole in the trunk about seven feet from the ground. The dog kept jumping at the tree and scratching, looking around to me to lift him up. When I did so, he dropped down inside the hole. Then there was an awful noise. I heard the dog growling and barking and something screaming. I thought my dog must be fighting a bear and holding my rifle ready, called to him to drive the animal out. A moment later something shot out of that hole. I fired and the creature fell to the ground. I looked at it, and then I felt sick, for what I had shot looked like a naked white boy about twelve years old. He was bleeding from a bullet wound in his leg, but when I stepped forward he twisted away and let out a wild scream. From deep in the trees came a reply. Nearer and nearer came the voice, and every now and again the wounded boy would cry out as if calling directions. Then out of the forest came a Sasquatch woman. She was about seven feet tall, big built all over, and her skin was as dark as mine. Her long, straight hair fell to her knees. She looked so big and strong that I am sure if she had laid hands on me, she could have broken every bone in my body. When I saw her, I felt scared and Instinctively, I lifted my rifle in case I had to defend myself. The wild woman ran toward the boy, bent over him, and then turned on me savagely, her eyes like balls of fire. And in the Douglas dialect, she growled, You have hurt my friend! I explained in the same language, I am part Douglas myself, that I had mistaken the boy for a bear and was very sorry for the accident. Anyway, I pointed out that he was not badly hurt. She made no reply, but, picking up the boy as easily as if he weighed nothing, lifted him to her shoulder and strode out into the woods. I do not think the boy belonged to the Sasquatch people, because well, he was white-skinned, and she called him her friend. No, she must have stolen him as a child, or run across him in some other way. Another well-authenticated Sasquatch encounter happened last September, when Indian hop-pickers were having their annual picnic near Agassiz, British Columbia. 
it was alleged that a young Indian man and maiden, named respectively William Point and Adeline August, both graduates of a Vancouver high school, had walked some distance from the picnic ground when they suddenly came across a Sasquatch. Hearing of the occurrence and anxious to verify it, I wrote to William Point for particulars. Here is his reply. Dear Mr. Burns, I have your letters asking, is it true or not that I saw a wild giant at Agassiz last September while with the hop pickers there? It is true, and the facts are as follows. Adeline August and myself started for her parents' house, which is about four miles from the picnic grounds. We were walking on the railroad track when Adeline noticed someone walking along the grade coming toward us. I also saw this person, and first thought it another man walking the tracks as we were. But as he came closer we noticed that his appearance was very strange, and on coming still closer we halted in amazement and alarm. We saw that the man wore no clothing at all and was covered with hair like an animal. We were both very frightened. I picked up two large stones with which I intended to use on him if he attempted to molest us, but within fifty feet or so he just stopped and looked at us. He was twice as big as the average man, with arms so long that his hands almost touched the ground. His eyes were very large and as fierce as a cougar's. The lower part of his nose was wide and spread over the greater part of his face, which gave him a very repulsive appearance. Then my nerve failed me, and I turned and ran. I looked back as I ran and saw that he had resumed his journey. Adeline August had fled first, and she ran so fast that I did not overtake her until we reached the picnic ground, where we told the story of our adventure. Other Indians who were present said that the monster we encountered was undoubtedly a Sasquatch, a tribe of wild hairy giants, now almost extinct, who live in the district in tunnels and caves. Assuring you of the truth of this, yours truly, William Point. I do not doubt the authenticity, as he is both intelligent and well-educated. And now let me illustrate how extremely sensitive the Indians are regarding the Sasquatch and how indignantly they resent their word being doubted. The Old Chief Broadcasts On May 23, 1938, a festival known as Indian Sasquatch Days was held at Harrison Hot Springs, British Columbia. Having obtained special permission from the Department of Indian Affairs at Ottawa, I took several hundred of my charges to the event. Unfortunately, in his opening speech over the radio, a very prominent official of the British Columbia government made a bad slip, thus offending all the Indians present who understood English. After a few preliminary remarks, this personage went on, Of course, the Sasquatch are merely legendary Indian monsters. No white man has ever seen one, and they do not exist today. In fact, thereupon his voice was drowned by a great rustling of buckskin garments and the tinkling of ornamental bells as, in response to an indignant gesture from old Chief Flying Eagle, more than two thousand red men rose to their feet in angry protest. Chief Flying Eagle then stalked across to the open space where the speaker stood, 
surrounded by important dignitaries and others. Absolutely ignoring the entire groups, Chief Flying Eagle turned to the microphone and thundered in excellent English. The white speaker is wrong. To all who now hear, I say, some white men have seen Sasquatch. Many Indians have seen them and spoken to them. Sasquatch still all around here. I have spoken. The chief then strode back to his place and signed to the other Indians to sit down, leaving behind him the government spokesman whose face was exceedingly red. I was one of the party gathered about the microphone and immediately said a few words over the loudspeakers to appease the angry Indians. I corroborated Chief Flying Eagle's statement that white men have seen Sasquatch, adding that, although in sadly reduced numbers, Sasquatches are still believed to inhabit the vast mountain solitudes of unexplored British Columbia. During the many years I have been delving into this fascinating subject of the hairy giants of British Columbia, I have come into possession of much well-authenticated data. The oldest written record I have so far discovered is that of the late Alexander Caulfield Anderson. He was a noted explorer and pioneer adventurer, and Caulfield, a suburb of West Vancouver, is named after him. In the year 1846, when an inspector for the Hudson's Bay Company, Anderson was sent out by that company to establish a post in the then virgin wilderness in the vicinity of Harrison Lake. There was no doubt that he frequently encountered Sasquatches because he mentions the wild giants of the mountains several times in his official reports. For the most part, he writes that they are as wary as wild animals, but on one occasion he and his party had to retire before a bombardment of rocks hurled by a number of Sasquatches entrenched on a hillside. Not until three years ago, however, did I actually meet and talk to a white man who had seen a Sasquatch with his own eyes. That man was a young mining engineer named Roy King. At first, Mr. King was reluctant to relate his experience, fearing ridicule, but after I had convinced him of my own firm belief that the hairy men still inhabit certain sections of British Columbia's wildest regions, he told me the following. The White Man's Story Some two weeks previously, entirely alone, he had been prospecting in the mountains adjacent to Harrison Lake. He had established his solitary camp beside a likely-looking creek, that churned its turbulent way through the rocky walls several hundred feet in height. One evening, on his way back to camp, after a day of prospecting, he was walking. As he came within view of his campsite, he looked down and was surprised to see something moving. Thinking that it was probably a thieving grizzly bear, King stopped and unslung both his rifle and his binoculars. Focusing the powerful glasses, he was startled by the image they brought clear and close to his eyes, a giant of a man entirely naked and excepting for a small space around his eyes, covered from head to foot with black fuzzy hair. The monster was interestedly examining the prospector's personal belongings. The young man admitted that at first he thought he had been too long alone in the wilderness and that he was seeing things. Then it slowly dawned upon him that through the glasses he was actually getting a close-up 
of the supposedly mythical Sasquatch. Thereupon, he did the most sensible thing he could think of, stood perfectly still and quiet, watching through his binoculars until, a few minutes later, the giant strode off. Roy King then made his way slowly and cautiously down to his camp. He found that most of his possessions had been moved, but nothing had been taken away. Mr. King's story bears out what the majority of the Indians maintain, that the wild giants are neither belligerent nor thieves. On occasion, however, they will purloin food when hungry. Last fall, an Indian named Paul and his squaw were returning from a duck hunt, carrying some half-dozen waterfall they had bagged. Suddenly, a Sasquatch stepped quietly out of the thick bush on one side of the trail and stood directly in their path. Utterly terrified, Paul and his wife dropped the birds and took to their heels. Sometime later, accompanied by other Indians, they cautiously returned to the spot. But the Sasquatch had gone, and so had the ducks. Another Indian named Frank Dan, who asserts that he has seen the Sasquatch on many occasions, told me that one night, peering half-hidden from a window, he watched a Sasquatch take two salmon from the branches of a small tree beside the house, where he, Dan, had hung them to keep fresh until morning. Again, on a Sunday about a year ago, when most of the natives were at church, a Sasquatch entered the village and seeing that all was quiet and nobody apparently about, went into one of the houses. An Indian who had stopped at home saw the wild man come out, burdened with loaves of bread and smoked salmon. Perhaps the strangest and most terrifying experience any Indian has had with the Sasquatch is that related by an Indian woman named Seraphine Long, now very old. Seraphine claims that many years ago, when she was a young girl, she was kidnapped by a wild giant and lived in the haunts of the hairy monsters of the mountains for close to a year. She has told me the story many times, and I have set it down as nearly as possible in her own words. What happened to Seraphine Long? Before doing so, however, I should explain that among the natives of Canada, both Indians and Eskimos, there is a shortage of marriageable girls. Probably a similar condition exists among the Sasquatch, thus explaining the action of the wild giant in this case. I should also like to add that although her present-day photograph hardly bears this out, the evidence of her contemporaries goes to show that in her girlhood, Seraphine Long was considered one of the most comely girls in her tribe. Here is her story. I was walking down towards home one day, many years ago, carrying a big bundle of cedar roots and thinking of the young brave Qualak, Thunderbolt, I was soon to marry. Suddenly at a place where the bush grew close and thick beside the trail, a long arm shot out, and a big hairy hand was pressed over my mouth. Then I was suddenly lifted up into the arms of a young Sasquatch. I was terrified, fought, and struggled with all my might. In those days I was strong, but it was no good. The wild man was as powerful as a young bear. 
holding me easily under one arm with his other hand, he smeared tree gum over my eyes, sticking them shut so that I could not see where he was taking me. He then lifted me to his shoulder and started to run. He ran on and on for a long time, up and down hills, through thick brush, across many streams, never stopping to rest. Once he had to swim a river, and then perhaps I could have gotten away, but I was so afraid of being drowned that I held on tightly with my arms about his neck. Although I was frightened, I could not but admire his easy breathing, his great strength and speed of foot. After reaching the other side of the river, he began to climb and climb. Presently the air became very cold. I could not see, but I guessed that we were close to the top of a mountain. At last the Sasquatch stopped hurrying, then he stooped over and moved slowly, as if feeling his way along a tunnel. Presently he laid me down very gently, and I heard people talking in a strange tongue I could not understand. The young giant next wiped the sticky tree gum from my eyelids, and I was able to look around me. I sat up and saw that I was in a great big cave. The floor was covered with animal skins, soft to touch, and much better preserved than we preserve them. A small fire in the middle of the floor gave all the light there was. As my eyes became accustomed to the gloom, I saw that beside the young giant who had brought me to the cave, there were two other wild people, a man and a woman. To me, a young girl, they seemed very, very old, but they were active and friendly, and later I learned that they were the parents of the young Sasquatch who had stolen me. When they all came over to look at me, I cried and asked them to let me go. They just smiled and shook their heads. From then on, I was kept a close prisoner. Not once would they let me go out of the cave. Always one of them stayed with me when the other two were away. They fed me well on roots, fish, and meat. After I had learned a few words of their tongue, which is not unlike the Douglas dialect, I asked the young giant how he caught and killed the deer, mountain goats and sheep that he often brought into the cave. He smiled, opening and closing his big hairy hands. I guess that he just laid in wait, and when an animal got close enough, he leaped, caught it, and choked it to death. He was certainly big enough, quick enough, and strong enough to do so. When I had been in the cave for about a year, I began to feel very sick and weak and could not eat much. I told this to the young Sasquatch and pleaded with him to take me back to my own people. At first he got very angry, as did his father and mother, but I kept on pleading with them, telling them that I wished to see my own people again before I died. I really was ill, and I suppose they could see that for themselves, because one day after I cried for a long time, the young Sasquatch went outside and returned with leaf full of tree gum. With this he stuck down my eyelids as he had done before. Then he again lifted me to his big shoulder. The return journey was like a very bad dream, for I was light-headed and in much pain. When we recrossed the wide river, I was almost swept away. 
I was too weak to cling to the young Sasquatch, but he held me with one big hand and swam with the other. Close to my home, he put me down and gently removed the tree gum from my eyelids. When he saw that I could see again, he shook his head sadly, pointed to my house, and then turned back into the forest. My people were all wildly excited when I stumbled back into the house, for they had long ago given me up as dead. But I was too sick and weak to talk. I just managed to crawl into bed, and that night I gave birth to a child. The little one lived only a few hours, for which I have always been thankful. I hope that never again shall I see a Sasquatch. That is Seraphine Long's story the only one on record of a Sasquatch ever abducting an Indian girl. I could relate more instances concerning the wild giants of British Columbia, seemingly well-attested cases that I have collected over a period of many years. But in this article, the few I have recounted must suffice. Is it possible that primitive hairy giants still inhabit the mountain solitudes of British Columbia? Scientists and others may scoff at the very idea, but many Indians are sincerely convinced that Sasquatch, or at least a few of them, live to this day in the vast, unexplored interior. And like the Indians, I also believe. Copyright J.W. Burns, Indian Agent Chehalis Indian Reservation Published in The Wide World, a magazine for men. January 1940, Volume 84, Number 502. The illustrations and photographs of the witnesses and area were not such that I could scan them. This is the end of the story. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's william, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.